Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur with knowledge to share. Today, we're talking to Ankur Nakpal, the founder and CEO of Teachable, an online learning platform. In 2019, Ankur was named as a Forbes 30 Under 30 education honoree. Teachable has over 25,000 instructors who have earned over $500 million using the platform. And in the short time since we recorded this interview, Teachable has been acquired by the Amsterdam-based company Hotmart for a reported amount of a quarter of a billion dollars. Here's Ankur on what got him excited about being an entrepreneur. I grew up in a small country in the Middle East called Oman. Um, it's where my parents moved from India well before I was born. And it was an interesting journey to get here. Uh, growing up, my dad always wanted me to study in the United States. It was what he, you know, dreamt for me since I was a little kid. Uh, so after high school, I applied to a bunch of colleges, got rejected from most of them, but was fortunate enough to get into UC Berkeley in California. And that's, you know, so I came here wide-eyed at the age of 17. Um Knowing that I, in an ideal world, you know, wanted to be involved in technology, I had a failed attempt of being an engineer. I started studying computer science. I interned at Amazon, realized I was not for me. And since probably my, the end of my freshman year in college, I've tried building lots of different businesses. Uh, briefly, I built a Facebook application company that helped uh, people learn more about themselves through personality quizzes and friend quizzes. And I ran that business for about, you know, three or four years, achieved some degree of success there, which was great because it was my first taste of entrepreneurship. It made me realize how great it was to, you know, work for myself and not have a boss and run my own business. Um, and that's sort of what got me mentally excited about running a company. That's when I sort of knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It wasn't you had until, a taste of the good life, right absolutely. There. You know that freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I think it was. Back. I forgot who said it, but a taste of freedom makes you unemployable for life. So that's sort of <laughs> sort of what happened there. Um, so I did that. I ran that Facebook application business till about a year after I graduated college. I was 22 at the time. Spent about a year to two years trying other businesses, none of which quite worked, um, until I decided at the age of 24 to move to New York City, uh, the land of opportunity. Um, also a very exciting place to be in your, in your 20s, frankly. So that was my primary catalyst. And it was there that I started doing a little bit of teaching, both online and in person. And that's what started getting me excited about this idea of like online classes and the power the internet made available to any of us to start a business by sharing our knowledge. Um, and that's what, you know, back in 2014, led me to create the first version of what eventually is now Teachable, a platform to help anyone out there to create online classes, share their expertise, and actually get paid from it. Did you think at that time that you were building a platform for so many people? Over 500 million in sales of classes have occurred since you started Teachable in 2014. Was it like, I have to build this platform to help other people or more of a stumbling into something that worked for you that you thought, well, maybe another couple people might buy this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. it was always, it started off as a side project. Um, And then like I wanted from one customer was two, from two was five. There was not a chance in the world I ever dreamt uh, we'd get to this scale. I mean, look, I think I'm a pretty confident person, but that's crazy um, to almost delusional to think this was what would happen. I mean, I knew the fundamentals were sound, but 
I never even dreamt for a second, like this is the scale we could achieve. And what's most exciting now is like now I actually think we can be five or 10 times bigger because of seeing this whole thing unfold. But, you know, when we started out, that was not the case at all. Yes, it happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier that your parents were intent on sending you to school in the United States. Mm-hmm. I really wonder what they think <laughs> about this this whole journey that you've been on. There must have been a moment in this process where they panicked and thought we made a terrible mistake. <laughs> there've been there've been there've been several moments, and I also think my both my parents have different opinions. Uh, my parents grew up, you know, somewhat middle class. My dad always wanted to start a business himself. Like he always felt like he was this entrepreneur, but it felt too risky for him because he had us, he had a family, he had all these responsibilities he wanted to, he had to balance, right? To be a responsible parent or his version of what he thought responsible parenting was. But as a result, he really, really wanted me to start a business. So in a lot of ways, he never veered me on the path of like, you know, go get a job somewhere. My mom, on the other hand, was completely the opposite. I mean, I still remember there's a time when I was trying a business, it wasn't working. And she just called me distraught saying, you know, why don't you just apply apply to work somewhere? There's so many good opportunities out there. And my parents had this internal debate about whether I should do that. So, yeah, there, there definitely were times, especially on my mom's side, where she's like, hmm, this, this doesn't seem like it's going to plan. Yeah, well, I guess your dad won that one. Yeah, yeah. And I think <laughs> or, now that now they're both won. happy, now, they're, now, now everyone's happy. So, you know, that that worked out well. Yeah, I heard you say that your dad thought of entrepreneurship as a privilege. Mm-hmm. And that he didn't feel like he, it was too much of a risk, like you said, to to start his own business. Mm -hmm. What made it possible for you? How did you get over that hump? I think the biggest thing was, you know, having the support of my, having the support of my family, having the support of the culture around me. I mean, it's important to remember at this time I was, you know, at school in Berkeley, California, where... Um, it was almost the default thing to do. The idea of starting new businesses and new ideas did not seem like this crazy, reckless thing. It's It was almost normalized by the culture I was in. That helped. The other thing that helped is I started out when I was in college when you know my alternative was going to class. So it didn't feel like there was too much opportunity cost at the time. So I got very, very lucky. And again, once I started a business in college, then I was just kind of spoiled for life. The idea then of like going and, you know, getting a job somewhere, um, going and working for Facebook or whatever just seemed like not that invigorating when I could, you know, keep building things for myself. Look, not everyone gets to be named in the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And that has happened for you. So obviously you're doing something at Teachable that is unique. How much of it do you feel like is the business itself and how much of it is the choices that you've made in growing your business? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's different at every stage. I think when we started out, we were very fortunate and lucky because we were in the in the right market. I mean, look, the internet is an amazing place and all of a sudden now we're seeing the power of giving creators their audiences where they can build and start businesses and we are but a benefactor of that larger trend. So I think we got very, very lucky in the business we chose. So that that worked out really well. Since then, though, a lot of it, a lot of our success, frankly, has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the team we have in place. I mean, I guess I helped bring some of the first few people to Teachable, but at this point, it's an organization that, you know, that is far, far, far bigger 
than any one person, far bigger than than me. Um, we have how many you know, employees do you have? We now? have 125 people. So, yeah, I in some ways you say that like you're you're even a little bit oh yeah surprised. It, it blows my mind. It blows my mind all the time. So at that size, right, a lot of it is you just bring smart, motivated people. Um, and a lot of my job today is getting out of their way. A lot of times, better things happen when I empower them to just operate without sort of having that much supervision on the assumption that, you know, they're smart, motivated people working towards common goals. Let's dig into that a little bit more. A lot of our listeners are at the point where they're adding employees, they're mm-hmm. growing their business. Yep. And that process of hiring can be Ooh. really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I know as an entrepreneur, I've made some of the wrong decisions <laughs> in hiring before. Yeah. Other than they're smart yeah. and they are um, impressive on paper. What do you look for when you're adding people to the team mm-hmm. or what did you look for at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing that I noticed about hiring is how painful a process it can seem like sometimes because you put in all this effort and energy out into the world and you find candidates and you interview them. And at the very last stage, you know, they might not be a fit and then you're back to square one. So the, the first lesson I had is like, to sort of get over how deflating the process can feel sometimes. Because as an entrepreneur, I was addicted to sort of like instant rushes of dopamine. Like I'll build a feature and someone has it or I get a new customer. Hiring has a very long payoff from the effort and energy you put out into the world until someone joins the business. So that was something hard to like just learn through doing many times. But once I kind of got over that, I realized that hiring is one, something to not turn on or turn off. It's at least at our stage to always, always be hiring. Like you always take coffee with smart people, always say yes to things. Um, And more tactically, I think some of the things we did correct while hiring our early employees is to sort of ignore a lot of traditional credentialing. And what I mean by that is lots of other companies who hire do it based on which university people went to or did they work at so-and-so brand name tech company before. What we've found is our very best hires have on paper or on their resume not look like the best candidates. It's always been people that might have an unconventional background. Like our best engineers have no engineering degree. Our best executives have not come from startups. And finding people with, you know, slightly unconventional backgrounds who just really want this, you know, who have a point to prove for whom like this is like, this is a mission. Like they have something to show the world. Um, and that has almost always lined up with our very, very best people. So my hold big- on, Ankur, that because that is radical mm-hmm. that you have engineers that do not have an engineering yep. degree. Yep. How the heck does that work? <laughs> and like, how do you vet people yeah. to make sure that they have the right skill beyond just having passion for being a part of the company and being smart? Uh, at one point, for instance, when we were seven people, we had five engineers and two non-engineers, and the two non-engineers were the only people with a computer science degree. So. Um, Yeah, it's funny how that worked out. So what we found with engineering specifically is there's a lot of engineers that are self-taught. And while the downside of that is you could develop bad habits, they generally are far more resourceful. They're like really, really good at solving problems. And that's a large part of what engineering cultures are about. So our CTO, for instance, he does not have an engineering background, but um, and I interviewed him. And after an interview, we just got so caught up talking about this cool tool we built to like automatically pull videos from Udemy, which was a competitor, into our platform. And he got so inspired by this that he stayed up all night to like the next two nights um, and sent me a prototype he built. And that's the kind of passion you can't quite get off the market. And a lot of times these don't look like the employees you want to hire. For instance, he 
showed up late to the interview. And for a lot of people, <laughs> that's a deal breaker. But now, five and a half years later, he's still our CTO, you know? Hiring is one thing, mm-hmm. but retention is another thing. And yep. I know you have employees that have been with you for a very long time. Yep. What do you do to make sure that people who come to Teachable want to stay at Teachable? Yep. Uh, I think there's a few different things. Uh, and one of them is sort of unfair because you really want people to stay when things are hard. But the reality of the matter is when there's growth, whether it's growth in the business, growth in the number of employees, whether like things feel like they're growing, that's very, very motivating. So that's sort of you know, one thing that in some cases can't be helped, but we, we've been very lucky that the business has been growing. So it's, yeah, so that's that's one big aspect. If your business is growing, people are more likely to stick around. The other stuff that we've done is, I think, where was I reading this? Something about how it's much harder for people to leave a job if they have three true friends, but really like focusing on our culture and thinking about what we can do for people to develop like, you know, actual deep, meaningful relationships at work. The whole idea of, you know, you bring your whole self to work, not just your like, you don't have your work self and your personal self. You're just allowed to be authentic where you work, which to my parents is still a radical idea, but it's something that we've continually emphasized, especially since we're an in-person company. We're not a remote company. People have really, really appreciated that. And I think that's really what helped us hire and retain a lot of our early employees. As we've gotten larger, I think some of it has become more systemic and thinking about, you know, What are the sort of benefits that are important to people? What are the sort of work-life flexibility things that are important to people? How is this job going to accelerate their career faster than working somewhere else? Because at the end of the day, like I think we pay well, but we're never going to be a place where someone will make the single most amount of dollars. So what we focus on is how can someone who spends one year working at Teachable, how can this move their career forward, the equivalent of working two or three years somewhere else? Um, And really trying repeatedly to answer that question Um, in terms of the opportunities and the learning we can provide them. Teachable isn't the only company worried about employee retention. Today, tech has the highest employee turnover of any business sector, with a staggering churn rate of 13.2%. Companies like Teachable tend to face an uphill battle. When you attract and onboard a great candidate, how do you get them to stay? Anker and the Teachable team have the right idea. By setting up their employees for success, not only professionally, but personally. One thing that has always come up for me, whether it was when I was a media executive or now as an entrepreneur, work-life balance is always a struggle. Mm -hmm. I'm always hearing people (laughs) um, struggling with this, right? Mm -hmm. And especially as a CEO, where now you're managing Mm -hmm. this very successful business with 125 employees. Mm -hmm. How do you keep your work-life balance in check? And then how do you inspire others within your organization to make sure that they're managing their work-life balance, their mental health, their family life, and everything else that goes into being a great employee. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your culture becomes what you end up doing. And look, there have been times where, you know, there have been external deadlines and times we've had to push hard. But looking back on the last five years, in general, it's been a pretty sane work environment the entire time. So it's kind of multiplied and remained that way. Like, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever pulled an all-nighter in the last five years, and I can't imagine a reason to in the next five years. Uh, There have been times where we've worked, you know, harder because we've had certain things to do. But in general, I think my life is pretty balanced from the perspective of, as a founder, you're always going to think about work and there's nothing you can do about that. But in terms of hours in the office and so forth, I mean, most of the company's pretty good about, 
keeping a, you know, 40-hour work week or something along those lines, which is pretty reasonable, I think. It is reasonable. As an entrepreneur, I don't know if I ever work 40 hours. But one thing that can help and hurt us is technology. I I don't have to tell you that as the CEO of a tech company. But I find that sometimes having those fluid boundaries when you have your phone and you can always be working. I always say, I'm always working and I'm never working. (laughs) Yeah. I Do hear, you have a philosophy on that? I hear, yeah, and it's changed a little bit, right? I started out sort of all plugged in always, but at this point, I mean, we use Slack for our communication. I have no notifications turned on for anything, which sometimes works out the other way when I'll keep opening the app to see what's happened. But in general, it's like a no notification culture. When people are out and on vacation, unless there's something really important happening, they're expected to not be plugged in at all. And even now, like, you know, when I when I am off, I try my best. I don't always succeed, but I try my best to, like, you know, just not look at Slack and not look at certain things um, unless I'm required. So it's something you have to make a conscious effort for. And I think we, and by we, I mean our society is learning the benefits of doing that. Um, it's still it's still a work in progress, but I think you know we're all we're all getting better at it and realizing how damaging it sometimes is. This whole idea of always being plugged in. I want to go back to talking more about the scaling of a business. We've been through the process of hiring and growing the business in that way. But to get to the next level, Mm -hmm. you have to be making money some way, whether you're getting funding from outside sources or you're actually generating that. What was your path at Teachable? And what do you recommend to other entrepreneurs that are in that place of of needing to, to grow and get more capital? So we've always made money. Not always have we made enough money in order to pay for our staff and so forth. But from day one, we've charged people. And so my advice to everyone thinking about starting a company or is starting a company, charge people from day one. I mean, it's a good habit to have. I know there's counterexamples of Facebook and Google and so forth. And if you think you're building Facebook or Google, go for it. For the mere mortals, for the rest of us, you know, (laughs) uh, we charge people from day one. That was a very, very big part of our culture. And even now we lose money, but we lose very little money. uh, And it's informed our entire culture in every single way. For instance, there's a lot of companies out there that I'm not going to name names, but there are some pretty big blowups happening right now when companies just kept raising insane amounts of money and spending insane amounts of money. And that's just never been a part of our culture. Like by Silicon Valley standards, we're considered pretty cheap. Like last year on about 23 million in revenue, we burned 2 million and we're considered super cheap. And to me, I'm just like, man, we burned $2 million. But, you know, we try and keep those lines very, very close. And my advice to all the founders I work I work with is do that. I mean, if nothing else, you're in control of your own destiny. You never, your existence is not predicated on your next round of funding, which I would imagine is a very terrifying place to be. If you've hired all these people, you've taken responsibility for their lives, if you know they're part of your payroll, um, and you need to raise more money just to be able to afford to still pay them months from now. That's the level of stress I am personally not built to deal with. Uh, so for us, keeping those lines closed was always important. While at the same time, look, we always had the opportunity to raise money on good terms. So we did that and we'll keep doing that. But knowing that if things didn't work out, we always would be fine without the next round of funding. You said at the I Make a Living Live event, sell equity, don't sell control. Can Mm -hmm. you elaborate? What we've done at many stages when we've raised money is we've always been in a position where we could afford to raise money with good terms. And what that what that means is we've always controlled our destiny by only selling shares in our company in terms of the financial outcome. Like we sold 10% or 20% or whatever. And if we sell the company, the investors would receive that. But through the entire process, we have 
maintained full control of our board, full control of all our decisions, um, and we still run the company. This is still our company to run. And that's the other danger you run into when you raise too much money is you get to a point where you just need more capital that you can't afford to retain control. So that's my other advice to all founders is like when you structure your funding, make sure you're not giving up board control to your investors. Make sure you still ideally control more than half of the equity yourself. As you're in this place of growth, I don't know how much uh, future planning you do, but Mm -hmm. walk me through what the next year, two years, five years looks yep. like in Encore's life? Big, big picture in the next five, maybe even 10 years. This whole idea that anyone can earn a living selling their knowledge, sharing their expertise, it seemed radical five years ago. It was seemed crazy. Now it seems normal. Um, I think in five or 10 years from now, it would it'd be hard to imagine a world without that, right? Like think about all the platforms people have built an audience on, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Twitch and those platforms are continuing to grow. People are, there are more and more creators coming. How can we enable as many creators to earn a living? I mean, look, it's called I Make a Living. How many people can earn a living by sharing their knowledge, uh, selling their expertise? And how can Teachable play a big part in that? Today, we do that by helping people sell courses. In the future, we want to help people make a living by sharing their knowledge and expertise in any way. It could be coaching. It could be in-person events. It could be different forms of training. The world we're moving into is starting to place a bigger premium on information and knowledge versus physical items. And we're in this really dope spot where we can control that. So that's our like, you know, five, 10 year plan is to just control that economy. On a year by year basis, it's a lot more financial and like we want to grow 70% year over year. And then looking at our model and think about how do we go from, you know, 23 million in revenue to 40 million in revenue? Uh, How do we, you know, we have a budget and like plans to build up to that. But what we're excited by is not just the 23 million to 40 million. It is like this amazing future that we have a big, big chance um, to actually shape and move the world in that direction. Have you ever heard the phrase, those who can't do, teach? (laughs) I think we need to reverse the thinking on that. Teaching is powerful. And platforms like Teachable give everyone the ability to share and monetize their knowledge whether as a new full-time business or just as supplemental income. The stories we're seeing are amazing. Like just yesterday, I was running the numbers. We found, and about 500 people, for instance, made $100,000 on our platform last year. But so many of them made $100,000 by teaching less than 100 people. Like we've had someone who taught 35 people and made over $100,000. Because a lot of people are scared. They're like, oh, you know, like I don't have, I'm not going to be able to find thousands of customers. You don't have to. Or like, like we're seeing these stories every single day and it's so inspiring and like fuels the entire team. What do you think is the special sauce then? There might be people listening here who are entrepreneurs in one field that have never even thought about teaching what they know. And maybe they could have an alternative source of revenue or passive income yep. stream by creating a course. So if you could boil it down to the secret yep. sauce of what has separated those, those say, 500 people who have made that amount of money from people that haven't been successful, what is it? This is going to sound a little wishy-washy, but it's actually true, is people are really, really afraid that they don't have anything valuable to teach. And when people get over that psychological hump and they actually are convinced that their information is valuable. And sometimes it might take like coaching or sitting down with them to see what valuable information they have. Like most people come to us being like, look, I want to do this, but I don't have any marketable skills. I don't have like this, like one thing people want to learn from me, but you investigate further. Maybe someone's, you know, 
someone's recently had had a kid and they've learned something that experience and they can now have training for new to be parents. Maybe someone just bought a house in like a certain neighborhood and now can teach other future homeowners. Once people realize that they all have valuable experiences that people want to learn from them, once they get past that psychological hump, it gets a lot easier. Then it's just a case of how do you execute on that? But the biggest place people trip up is either thinking they have nothing valuable to share, nothing valuable to teach, or actually thinking of something valuable to share, but never never putting it in people's hands, being in this constant state of creating content and iterating and working on it and then deleting it. But once they get past those two steps, the worst thing that happens is, you know, people aren't, people don't buy, people don't get the outcome. But from that point, you talk to other people and you figure it out. So the biggest thing holding people back is, you know, it is frequently just psychology. You know, I've been there as a content creator Mm -hmm. and as a coach. And not every one of my programs or products has sold mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're in that space? Like you've put all this energy, maybe you've gotten over that hump that you were just describing and you have put all this time and energy and maybe even money mm-hmm. into creating something that you thought was going to be really transformational for people. Mm-hmm. And then it's a flop. Yep. Like we can't give yeah. up, right? Yeah. How can't, do you iterate? can't give up. What I then recommend too is find finding an individual, it might be a couple of individuals, and not even selling them the program, but like hand guiding them through the process, right? Like then you're like, okay, fine. I mean, almost a form of coaching where you're like, okay, don't worry about the program. Leave the program alone. How can I help you? Like how how can I help you reach the outcome? Whatever the outcome is, working with them one-on-one, maybe eventually you can start doing it in groups and then productizing that. That way you're not spending all this time building this high fidelity product up front. You're actually working with someone, getting them results, probably getting paid for it. And then when that works, it's a much more compelling narrative as well in terms of you know how do you take that skill and, and do it on a, on a greater scale. So a lot of our creators are now starting that way where they're starting with coaching, they're starting with helping people one-on-one, they're sometimes even doing the thing for the person. Like let's imagine your course would be on you know, how to teach someone to write a cover letter, you might start by actually just doing writing the cover letter for them. Then you start act- teaching people how to write their own cover letters. And then you create a course that anyone can take to write a cover letter. That's just one example, but something like that. What I'm hearing from you actually is that it has to begin with listening, mm-hmm. right? That you have to be listening to what your audience needs. Because a lot of times we create, whether we're talking about a course or whether we're talking about a different kind of product that we're offering or program that we're offering, Sometimes we dream it up in our head and yep. then we just put it out there and like, everybody needs this. Yeah. And There's another step in evaluating what they need. Absolutely. Like um, what we always tell people is no one wants your course. Like literally no one wants your course. What they want is the outcome. It's the transformation. Like what is the promise that people want? And that's what they want. Your course is just a way for them to get there. But find find their transformation, find their outcome. The outcome might be like it's, you're never selling a programming course. People are buying this ability of them building their application, right? Like you're not selling a fitness product. Pe- your people are buying their like ripped six pack body, and really figuring out what that transformation is, what that outcome is, and then you realize you're in the business of selling that, and your course helps them get there. But that's what they're buying, and these are all sort of the hard won lessons we've seen after observing the successful people from the people that are still sort of figuring it out. I want to repeat what Ankur said here. Your customers aren't necessarily interested in the journey. They're interested in the outcome. This is something that I struggled with for a long time in selling my online programs. I thought it was about what was in the course. But to inspire someone to buy, it had to be about 
how it would change their life. This is a hard-learned lesson for many entrepreneurs. What are the lessons that you have learned along the way as a CEO? You know what lessons your creators have, have been through, but I'm sure there have been moments along the way that caused you to, to mm-hmm. question, to take stock, and, and that have sent you in a different direction. One thing that I, I'm honestly still an ongoing process is like balancing, balancing my own psychology because at any given point, there's probably four things that seem really bad and two things that seem really good. And it's really important to not let that overwhelm you as it did in prior years. And I think that's something that I've slowly learned, still not an expert at it, but just with the sort of repeated practice of of realizing how emotionally draining running a business can be and trying to find your like Zen place or something where you're somewhat stoic about it. And that's, again, that's just your survival as a founder. So that's been sort of one area that, you know, I've spent a bunch of time on and now feel in a much, much better place. The other lesson has been all the human stuff, like the people you work with, the relationships you form. At the end of the day, that that's the stuff that is going to always deeply, deeply matter. And that's, you know, a lot of other CEOs, frankly, have different opinions from me there. And that's why I sometimes think I'm a little bit different from them. But to me, that's something that with the passage of time, I've realized is the single most important thing. And I think 10, 20, 30 years from now, that's the stuff I'm going to hold on to. Not whether our EBITDA was like $400,000 more or less or whatever, which mm. it, which according to corporate America, I'm going to a bad CEO. But as a founder of, of a thing that I've created... Um, that's sort of been a learning that's with every passing year gotten bigger and bigger. That is so valuable. Before we go, I love to ask our guests to tell us about their favorite tips or their favorite tools that have helped them navigate this journey of entrepreneurship. Is there a tip or a tool that you would like to share with us today? This is it's cliched, right? But the the one thing that I think of again, as I was talking about, like finding a balance and so forth. Since I started the company, I, you know, historically did not read a lot. And lately, like I found reading particularly fiction. So the opposite of, again, business advice has frequently been one of the best tools I've had just to deal with things at work. Like a lot of times, you know, the last thing I want to do after a stressful day at work is to go back and read a business book. Um, But lately, I've just started reading a lot and I gamified it for myself by you know, having a super dorky spreadsheet of every book I've read and rating on a scale of one to five. Uh, but that's been something that's <laughs> helped me so much actually get into the habit of reading. And now it's become a thing I've, I've, I really enjoy. And for years, I tried to make it a thing I enjoy. So that's something that I've, has really helped me. I'm not big into productivity routines and like the perfect morning routine and, you know, wake up and meditate and do all that stuff. I just try and get out of bed and get to the office. We're all just out here trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that is a really great tip and not one that I've heard <laughs> before. So maybe I'll try and implement yep. some more fiction reading yep. into my routine. Thank you so much for being here, Ankur. Thank you. It's been a blast. As we learned from Michael Cass in last week's episode, stories are what teach and inspire us. Through reading fiction, Ankur is actually priming his brain to explore and innovate. I, for one, can't wait to see what these stories help him dream up next. What would you teach if you could create a course today? Let me know on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Demona Hoffman, and let's discuss. Maybe you could discover a much-needed alternative revenue source right now. 
Don't forget to implement Anker's great takeaways from today's episode. Follow a career that you're passionate about. Anyone who has knowledge to share can teach. Set your employees up for success. Don't take more venture capital than you need. When you're marketing, focus on the outcome for your clients, not the journey. Check out Teachable at teachable.com and get your knowledge out into the world. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. Want to know more about how you can save hours on accounting paperwork and focus more on your business? Head over to freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L to receive an exclusive offer. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer is James Morris. Producing and direction comes from Paco Erzmendi. And I am your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. And keep sharing what you know, because it's your business. See you next week.